From Welcome Villain Films, the studio that brought you the horror hit Malum, as well as Beaten to Death and Hunter Killer, comes their newest nightmare, Mind, Body, Spirit, now available on digital. Directed by Alex Haynes and Matthew Miranda, and produced by Dan Asma, Mind, Body, Spirit follows Anya, an aspiring yoga influencer, as she embarks on a ritual practice left behind by her estranged grandmother. What starts as a spiritual self-help guide quickly evolves into something much more sinister. As Anya becomes increasingly obsessed with the mysterious power of the practice, she unwittingly unleashes an otherworldly entity that begins to take control of her life and her videos. Now, Anya must race to unlock the truth before her descent into madness threatens to consume her mind, body, and spirit. During its festival tour, which stops at Chattanooga Film Festival and the Unnamed Footage Festival, Mind, Body, Spirit garnered praise from critics who call it a found footage version of Hereditary and a knockout found footage horror movie for the live stream era. Experience the first ever yoga-themed found footage horror film and don't miss the film viewers have called extremely frightening and upsetting. Available now on digital anywhere you rent or buy movies online, including Prime Video and Apple Plus. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about Wix. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to LinkedIn.com slash results to claim your credit. That's LinkedIn.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. And welcome back to Scarred for Life, the podcast where we open up old wounds by looking back at the films that scared us as kids. I'm Terry. And I'm Mary Beth. Each episode, our special guest will bring with them a movie that traumatized them as a child. 
This week, our guest is Andrew Scott Bell. He's a composer who's worked on numerous horror short films, as well as the upcoming anthology film Death Sember. He's also scoring Shudder's queer horror documentary. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This is really exciting. I'm really Yay. excited that you're here, and I'm really excited that we can talk a little bit about the uh, the queer horror doc. Um, yeah. But before we do that... We always ask, how did you get into horror? I got into horror kind of in a roundabout way. I didn't expect to to score horror films. When I first moved to LA, I scored a short film called Rocket. And one of the writers of that short, uh, his name is Ian Hawk, loves horror movies. So he went on to do some horror movies and thought, Andrew, that composer from Rocket would be really great in horror. And I never really expected to get into horror. It wasn't something that I watched a lot as a kid. Uh, mm. we can get into that a little bit more later, but it, I just, I just didn't think of my career going in that direction. So when I, when, when Ian first asked me to score Foxwood, which was my first horror short film, it was just so much fun and he was right. I would enjoy it. And I think I, yeah, I, I really enjoy it. So that's kind of how that happened. That's awesome. So, uh, how, how does one go about scoring <laughs> yes. a movie or a short or any of that kind of stuff? I have wanted to talk to a composer for so long because yeah. I just like want to dig into the brain of a, like someone like you and be like, how do you do it? Like, how? Like, where does the inspiration come from? Because it just seems like such a daunting task for me, someone who does not play instruments or really have any musical inclination other than liking to listen to it. Yeah. So I just want to hear like the process, like Terry said, like, how do you score a film? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of like, how do you write a film? I, I feel like sometimes I don't know how I score a film. Every one is so different from the other. Uh, it really comes down to the interactions between the director and me and what he or she is looking for and what I might bring and how I might bring that to their film. I don't know how it's a hard question to answer because it's, <laughs> this, you know, it's like, how do you write or how do you dive into a character as an actor? So something like that. Is it yeah. is it something where like because like I I I, ha I know nothing about it. Is it something where they they will send you like an entire completed film and you start scoring it, or are you involved earlier on in it? How does how does your involvement does it depend from from film to film or short film to short film? Yeah, it's every film is a little different. So okay, sometimes I get like very close to or locked mostly it's locked picture especially okay. shorts like shorts mm -hmm. you know we can score it when it's locked because there's not too much time but yeah it's, it's usually pretty close to being done when i come on board but for example this queer horror doc i'm involved in this process i'm seeing the cuts as they're being edited which is not typical for me but you know you have to do with you have to work with the process that that film is working with when you work on it. That makes yeah, sense. Yeah, that 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 does make sense. Um, how I that's another question. I mean, we can dive right into this because um, what I'm kind of curious about is how how do you when you when you are like composing a horror movie, it kind of makes sense about how to you know raise tension and that kind of stuff. But like when you're when you're working on a documentary, how how do you go about composing for that? Yeah, it is the all the different genres of film are a little bit different in yeah. how you're how you write for them. Uh a documentary, I think the music almost plays as like a second I mean in most film the music almost plays as a second narrator or the narrator in mm -hmm. the instance where there's not a narrator. Um but in a documentary you're really helping the audience 
as a second narrator because usually there's somebody driving us through it. And in mm-hmm. this case, it's Sam Weineman, who is an excellent driver. Yes. Um, Sam had so many nice things to say about you when he found out that we were interviewing you, oh, by the way. Oh, he did? Oh, that's yes, so great. Yes, he did. Yes. He <laughs> I was love like, Sam so much. He he seems like a really cool guy, and I'm, yeah. I'm hoping that we'll be talking to him soon for um, for this podcast as well. But he uh, he like all of a sudden just reached out to me yesterday, and he's like, "I hear you're talking to my friend Andy. So <laughs> fucking cool." Is his yeah. quote? He's great. And yeah, so um, so let's back up a little bit because of that. Because um, he told me that that you co collaborated with him on the last three years of Christmas music for him yeah. that he does to raise um money for the AIDS life cycle. Mm-hmm. And I feel like we've raised over I don't want to misquote here, but I feel like it's over twenty thousand or something. It's a lot Jeez. of money we've raised. Especially last year we raised a lot of money. That's awesome. Yeah. How did how did you and Sam get to know each other? I met Sam so that that rocket film I that I mentioned earlier was mm-hmm. a Chapman thesis film. Okay. And through that film I met so many wonderful filmmakers in all parts of the film industry that are just coming out. You know, at the time I met them they were students, now they're coming out into the industry and Sam was one of those people. I don't remember what I had scored another movie the year after Rocket and another student film. And I was there at the screening because they have like a little kind of screening for each block of films. I was there and I saw The Quiet Room, which is incredible. Mm-hmm. And I think it's on Shutter. If any of your listeners haven't seen it yet, it is so good. And so when I saw that, I said, I said to my partner, I said, Ashley, I got to go meet. I got to meet this guy because he's incredible. And I want to maybe work with him. And I, I walked up to Sam and kind of like waited in line because there were so many people waiting to talk to him. And I just stood there like, and I met his mom because she was standing there also waiting to talk to him. It was like, it was crazy. It was like meeting a celebrity, but I got to meet him very briefly. And then we connected via social media. And then that was in the spring. And then by the time the fall came around, he reached out to me and said, I'm sorry, we haven't gotten to work on a movie yet, but I have this idea that I want to, kind of remix some of my old Christmas songs. I don't know if you guys know this. I don't know if Sam would be mad if I tell this, <laughs> but <laughs> Sam tell. used to be uh, a MySpace celebrity. What? Oh my God, what? Yes, yes. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he used to sing like parody songs. <laughs> no way. On MySpace. And he oh. was in like the top 10 or something like, you know, videos a bunch of times. Oh my and they God. were all very funny. Oh my and so God, some of them amazing. were Christmas songs. So that first Christmas album, like 2017, was a remix. We like took a bunch of his songs that he had written over the time that he was on MySpace and some after. And we kind of remixed them and reimagined them into like a different genre or this or that. So yeah, that wow. that's interesting. That's amazing. Wow. We're going to have to... Look up those videos of Sam. Yeah. I, I just Googled it to have it as a tab open I don't later. Think it was, I think it was by his name anywhere but my face. So if you Google that, maybe a- anywhere you'll find but it my there. face. Okay. Yeah. Everyone Which is perfect. Stalk, stalk Sam Weinemann on MySpace if that's and, even a thing. I don't even, yeah, maybe. 
We're going to have to bring this up with him and have a discussion oh, please, about this please. part. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Um, so is, is it through Sam that you got involved with Death Sember? Because um, I don't know if our listeners know, but there is it's it's a very it's a long, from what I understand, um, anthology film that's each day of Christmas, I believe. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I haven't had a chance to see it yet. I've seen Sam's uh, segment, which you also composed, from what I understand. I did. Yeah. How did you get involved with Death Sember? Was it was it through Sam? It was. It was Sam wanted to bring me on to score his. And then kind of through brainstorming with some of the other L.A. directors, we kind of thought like, hey, we should – well, mostly them. They brainstormed and said, hey, we should share as many crew as possible. So it was from that that I also scored Vivian Vaughn's short, which has Barbara Crampton in it. Oh, cool. shit. that's so cool. I'll send you guys that It's if you want to see. It's really good. Absolutely. Um, yes. So I scored those two, and then I kind of met through that, met the two directors, or uh, sorry, the two producers, and started a conversation about the main theme and who was going to score that. And they they asked me to submit a demo, and and I did, and then I got the gig, and it was just so incredible working with the orchestra in Budapest who recorded the score to wow. get out. And so now cool. they, they just recorded the score to parasite. This is like, Holy shit. And they played my music. It was an incredible experience. Like, yeah, it's amazing. That is so, incredible. Yeah. We, it was we will really, link to, really cool. to your website. Cause that's, that's how I first, when, when, uh, when this all started going down, I was like, I'm going to go see who this guy is. And I was listening to, cause you have the death Sember suite. Is that the, that's the theme, correct? Yeah. That's, um, actually a combination. That's the one on my home. My landing page is mm -hmm. the death Sember suite, which I have queued up. If you wanted me to play a clip. Of oh, it. sure. Absolutely. Ooh, that Please would be do. awesome. I was going to say, I want to cut it to a clip of the songs. That would right, be yeah, awesome. Here we go. It keeps going. That's but that is the so good. Oh, thank you. Thank it you. sounds I, like it sounds like Nightmare Before Christmas, like Danny yeah. Elfman, but like yeah. more epic in a way. Oh, thank the, you. Yeah. yeah, with like the horn. Wow. Yeah, we're kind of Christmassy. We're going for that Christmas vibe, that kind of creepy Christmas vibe. We didn't want it to be. I mean, there are some shorts in December that are like really gory, and so we we're trying to find that balance of like. You know, not the entire movie is that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So where do we play? I, I think we landed on a good, this is going to be an exciting, fun ride. And we kind of landed on that sound, I think, which was really nice. What I love about it is it's it's very it's very majestic, um, but it also has a very kind of playful nature to it. But then there's also kind of a little bit of a sinisterness to it. So I, I really, I I was blown away when I heard that on your site. Well, thank you. 
And I really, I really can't wait to see Death Sember. I know a, that, that, that song gets me hyped to see Death Sember. Oh, that's great. That's the point. That's amazing. Thank you. Yeah, that's the suite. So, and then, and then it transitions into, in that iteration, transitions into the main theme from Vivian's short with Barbara. And okay. then a transition from that to the the theme of Sam's short, which you would recognize, Terry. And then it transitions yeah. back into the December theme. So that's the suite that plays during the end credits. And there's another version okay. of the theme that plays during the opening credits. But it's very similar. So I have a very, like, novice question here. So do you send – so you send your music to the orchestra and then they record it, but you don't meet with them to talk about it? Like, you just would send your compositions to them? Um, yeah. And, and actually okay. in this case, what we did, because they're in Budapest, we, yeah. my orchestrator and I, and I have to give a shout out to Oscar Senin cause he's an incredible orchestrator. He just was the lead orchestrator on the new James Bond movie. Oh, oh incredible. God. He's amazing. <laughs> cool. Um, so yeah, like that's a, I, when I, when I read that, when I saw that news, I, I texted him and I said, Oscar, like that's a, a, box that you check off in your musical life uh, like you yes. were a bond movie right <laughs> so oh my anyways, God. he's amazing so he and i i would send him in the music and he would notate it and write it up for the orchestra cool and then he sent them the pdfs that they printed and on the day he and i got on like a conference call a lot like what we're doing now where we would listen to them and then give notes and they would do another take and then we would give notes and and then after that they sent us all of these massive Pro Tools files of all of the audio from that session. That's awesome. Yeah. Wow. It's really cool. That I can't so... wait to do it in person. One day when I'm sitting in the room will be so great. Yeah. That's just such a cool thing wow. to work with that massive orchestra and get to talk to them and give them notes. It's just such yeah. a it's such a cool process. Yeah. I feel very blessed. You know, so I, I kind of want to also go back a little bit and find out how you got into music because yes. I, I love, I love music. Um, I, I come from a musical family. My dad, he played piano in the, uh, the Air Force band. He was part of the, oh, that's great. Cause he was going to get drafted into the army. So he joined the Air Force and mm -hmm. he was studying music. So he, he was a piano, a pianist and he played trombone and stuff. So like my whole, my mom plays drums. My brother plays drums. I grew oh, up playing so cool. saxophone. I love, I love music. So I'm just kind of curious how, how you got into, into music and how you just d decided to do composing. I, well, well, first of all, I, it cut out when you said what instruments you played. What oh. instruments did you play, oh. Terry? <laughs> I played saxophone. Oh, saxophone. That's awesome. Yeah. I love saxophone. I played, I played alto sax in concert band and in marching band. I was a uh, bass or tenor, depending on for, for jazz. And yeah. There's a great video essay I watched recently. Can't remember by who, but it was about the tracking, like, how and why we associate saxophone with like sexuality and oh yeah <laughs> and it goes all the way back to like a streetcar named desire and how that film mm. score used the saxophone because they couldn't show the characters having sex the saxophone <laughs> would play in these scenes where they had just finished having sex so that's what really i love about music yeah. is is the way that it can like tap into specific things like it yeah. can hint at sex or it can hint at, at fear or that or at any emotion it's it's such an emotionally powerful which we'll i'm sure we'll get into when we talk about mm. the movie we're going to talk about today but um yeah so how did how did you get into into music so very young i think i 
I was always kind of a weird kid and my parents picked up on that and they were like, what are we going to, we got to give him something to channel this through. So they tried so many different things. Like I was in ballet because my friend Kayla was in ballet. So I was like, that would be fun. And then it didn't really interest me because I just wanted to dance by myself over in the corner. (laughs) Right. So one of the things they tried was piano lessons and I hated piano lessons, but I loved playing the piano. So I didn't really like being told what to play. Oh my but God. But I liked same. playing. And I think that's, it kind of all came from there. Um, because I, I kind of put it away for a while. And then later in life, I came back to it, not in a lesson structure, just with my own ears. And I have to attribute a lot of my, a lot of this to Alan Silvestri and his score to Forrest Gump. Because, mm, wow. Oh, it's so good. It's such a good score. It is a beautiful score. Oh, it's the best. Or one of the best. We're about to listen to some of the best. (laughs) Uh, But my parents had this CD that was mostly like popular songs like Bob Dylan and, and, you know, rock songs from the 60s, 70s from the Forrest Gump movie. But the last track on the second disc was A Suite of Themes by Alan Silvestri. And I used to come home and I had moved my CD player from my bedroom to the piano. And I would come home from school and press play and just try to learn it by ear and I feel like I'm going to mess it up but if I could like I still know it to this day I mean I messed it up but I still kind of know it to this day no yeah I love how much music like makes you feel like just hearing that part of it I was like Oh my God, Forrest Gump. And then you get emotional thinking about like watching that yeah. movie. Like, I mean, not, not even just for that movie, but for like the experience of watching it with like my family, because my family loves yes. that movie for some reason. But yeah, it's yes. like the experience, like the emotions it dredges up about memory rather than just the act of watching. Right. Yeah. You, it, did it bring you back to the room with your family? It did. Yeah. That's so special. Yeah. It is that's something special. I love about, about films and movies. My family really bonded by watching movies together because i feel like sometimes in america you don't for whatever reason verbalize love the best way and i you know i don't want to say that that was my my family because my family was very vocal but sitting together in a room and watching a movie was a way to feel love without saying i love you yeah Yeah. yeah yeah Yeah, that was that was the same for me growing up. Yeah, in the uh, in the eighties, it was definitely like uh, it was a whole family experience, um, and it was it was it was it. I think you just summed it up pretty pretty perfectly. Yeah, mm. yeah. Huh. So that's how I got to music, and then I wow. and not to change it back. I mean, we just we just had a moment. I should let the moment. <laughs> I should let the moment sit. <laughs> Look at me trying to ruin our moments, Terry. Gosh. I was having a, I was I was having a moment right there. My mind was just like wandering back to being a kid, which again we're going to talk about soon as yes. well because because man, this movie that we're going to eventually be talking about. But I don't want to get there so yet. Not we, yet. We, should, okay. Okay. we should enjoy this. Enjoy this moment. <laughs> yeah. So it was ET. No, sorry. You can edit that out. <laughs> Here we go. Cut. Yeah. So it was it was Forrest Gump, and and that's what brought me back to music. Um, and then in band and in high school, I started to get into composing my own music. And at the time I had a really wonderful band director, Chris Smith, 
in high school that was really encouraging. And he started a music theory class, which if I look back on it, it might have been just for me because it was like me and four other people, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and I, he just knew I was really passionate about it. So uh, he really encouraged me at that time when you need someone who's not your parents to encourage your creativity, if you know what I mean. I yeah, do, definitely. Oh, 100%. And music educators are unsung heroes of, of the music industry, truly, truly. Yeah. Yeah, there was there was a moment where I, I had contemplated going down that route as being a, a music educator because uh, it's, it's, music has always been so important to me. And you just talking about the music theory class that you had to take or that you took um, – my senior year of, of high school, we um, we did have a music theory class, and it was probably me and like five or six other people. And one of the best things, one of the the best memories I have of high school was um, taking a song. Our final project was taking a song and uh, composing it, and then the band would would play it. And that was <gasps> one of the oh, that's so cool. That was yeah. one of the best best memories I, I have of of high school. To be Do honest, you still have the song. No. You still have the piece? Why not? No. Somewhere? I, they didn't record it. Oh, uh, no, I mean yeah. the written. That you must have oh, the written. Oh, no, I don't. Somewhere. I don't. That was uh, so long ago. <laughs> well, no, but, it exists um, in your memory, which maybe is even better. Yeah, it was no, it was it was quite special to to see that come yeah. to life. So I, I, I can I can only imagine how it would be for, for you since you know music has become such an important thing for you. Yeah. It's really it's very special to hear human beings playing my music back to me. Uh, we, I don't get to experience it as often as I'd like, because in the modern world, you can load up a violin patch and <laughs> play it on your keyboard. Yeah. But there's, even though that sounds very realistic, uh, and it sounds like I have 18 violins in my room right now, there's not quite anything like hearing 18 human beings tell you what they think your music is saying back at you. Yeah. It's really yeah. something special. And I, I think that's transitioning back to Death Sember, the, the score, because that, that theme, that suite just really hit me. And I think it's probably because it is humans playing an instrument. Yeah. It's not a sample. It's not something that a computer has generated. It It feels alive in a way that just like, like the violins you just played don't necessarily. Right. Right. And you can emote a lot of, a lot of intention and a lot of emotion into samples and computer samples, but it, right. it's still just like that extra step. It's like, I often compare it to the difference between Siri and a human being speaking words mm. where per it's that's a perfect analogy. Obvious that Siri is speaking and she sounds quite lifelike. You can, you know, make her have different inflections that are humorous, but it's not quite the same. Right. Wow. Wow. Well, it feels weird to transition to talk about what we've been watching, but that is technically what we should do next. <laughs> but yeah, I want to hear, I want to hear what you guys have been watching. It's just like I a know moment. And then I'm like, watching. well, what, where do we go from here, guys? It's over. <laughs> <laughs> This is, this is such a great I'm, I'm really having a good time with this conversation yeah uh, so I am I say. oh this is so cool just because oh, I feel you. like it's such a good interesting like a different side of like filmmaking that people know about but we don't talk about as much mm. and I think it is really amazing to hear your perspective on the importance of music but also just your relationship with music yeah well thank you you know I was shocked when I found out that a lot of film schools 
also don't have a class, not even like a music appreciation class. They don't cover the process of music oh. in a lot of film schools, which was shocking to me because it seems so vital to the filmmaking process. Yeah, that is shocking because I feel like a score to me can make or break a movie. Sure. Like if a, if a score is like a little bit too much or it just doesn't match like the emotions you're supposed to be getting from the film, I feel like that can really affect your experience with it. And yeah, it feels like you probably want to tell people how to, you know, work with a composer or get music for your film. Yeah, I, I can't count the amount of times that a director has said to me, I've never worked with a composer before. Oh, wow. Boy. But wow, they had made several films before, you know, using oh, wow. library tracks or just like oh, popular okay. music. Yeah. But huh. this is part of what I'm so thankful to be on this podcast, you know, for and and I'm so thankful to be to have an Instagram and a, and a, the places where I can say this is what we're so many composers now are saying this is what I'm up to. This is what I'm doing. This is why music is important. This is why live players on the music are important you know yeah yeah you know it's it's interesting because i'm i'm just i'm i'm thinking back to because when i when i grew up um i purchased a lot of uh soundtracks to mm -hmm. uh to movies mm -hmm. like i i still remember wearing out my titanic cd hell yeah like, hell yes. yeah yes <laughs> Or like um, Jerry Goldsmith's music. Like I, oh I was a huge Jerry Goldsmith fan. Um, just like buying those scores and just listening to that. And I don't really do that anymore. And I, I sometimes wonder if um, films it, that, and this might speak to the, the greater issue that you're kind of talking about, is that if they're not teaching the importance of music in film, or is that in in a way hampering the amount of music that we're going to get in a film? Because I don't. To be perfectly honest, I don't know the last time that I've like sat down with like a, a I'm not talking independent films because there's been some independent films like oh, Daniel yeah. isn't real from last year, but like a big movie like a Marvel movie or something that I'd be like, ooh, I gotta own that score for. Yeah, yeah, I think there's a lot going into that, and and part of it is, I think, um, audience taste. It's not just that the the you know. It's not just the filmmakers making this decision. It's not just right. the studio yeah. or the producers. It's audience taste. And somewhere along the way, audiences said to f filmmakers, hey, that that's cheesy. You know, mm. that that big sweeping theme is cheesy. And it's just I think it's just a matter of taste and the, the, the waves that that preferences ride. And I think we're on the way we're swinging back towards a more Good. melodic I mean, yeah. Star Wars is back and, um, you know, the, f f a great example of this is that Alan Silvestri came back to score the last two Avenger movies. And those, oh, yeah. cool. those two movies have such big, wonderful themes. You talk about Marvel. I would recommend checking out that score, both of those scores, because they're so good. And he he treats the subject matter with like... Not that the other composers didn't, because they did, but Alan really has a way to treat the subject matter he's working with with so much respect and mm -hmm. and so much joy and and effort. I will, That's awesome. I yeah. will say, I listened to the Hereditary. So I think it's just oh, the taste. Sorry. No, 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 no. Tell me. The Hereditary score is so good. I know that's not really like a big blockbuster, but 
it was a pretty a relatively successful horror movie and that soundtrack yeah is amazing i love but i also love colin yeah. stetson um because he did the color out of space um score as well which i really love um, did he do the next one midsummer yeah did he do is midsummer it- uh, no, Midsummer I don't think score so. Midsummer score is phenomenal. Yeah, Midsummer score yeah. is phenomenal. Um, but he did not. He didn't do Midsummer, but he did Color Out of Space and he did Hereditary, which I love. And I also love the Us score as well. Yeah, it's oh, good. so good. Yeah, but I think like I am glad that the horror soundtrack I feel like is coming back in a way a little bit. Like there's a little bit more mm. focus on making like a badass soundtrack and putting it out on vinyl, like. Mm. Because Terry got me the Daniel isn't real vinyl for Christmas because he's the best and I love that sound that that score and it's like I feel like that is kind of coming back a little bit to me mm-hmm. in a way. So, do you know what I think is interesting to go back to our conversation about how I came to horror and why I really loved it when I started is that it seems to me like genre films, but really horror films aren't afraid to let the score be so present. Yeah, yeah and I think that that gives it a lot of weight to our enjoyment of it. When, when a film, when you can tell that a film score is like trying to not be noticed, mm-hmm. it yeah. hurts the film score and it hurts the film sometimes. Yeah. But in a horror movie, it's like big and in your face and like, we want to hear it. Yeah. Especially really when cool. people learn how, like not learn, but when it's timed to a way where like, it's really noticeable. And then all of a sudden it's gone and you're like, holy shit. And then it comes back all of a sudden oh, yeah. to really get at you. And like yeah. the use of music in horror, like you said, is so important, I think, to the effectiveness of right. the scares and the like the emotional connection you have to it. You you saw Terry, you saw uh, Milk and Cookies, which is Sam's December yes. segment. Part of what he and I did was part of what Sam and I did was was build a this like false of uh, this this false sense of security with the music. Yes. Because there's music throughout the whole thing. And it's very like John Williams, home alone, childlike Christmas fun. And then part of the way through the movie, the music just drops out. I noticed that. So vulnerable. And so, yeah, I I noticed that because it, it, it definitely has a kind of like, um, like you mentioned a playful vibe to it almost and a kind of like childlike innocence to it and then it goes away and then it's it gets really ominous and i yeah i thought the short it, it's a perfect five minute short it's it's such a, a good a good little journey well thank you thanks to kudos to sam really he's he's the captain of that ship <laughs> so now do we want to talk about what we have been watching recently yeah, I want to hear it. I want to hear what you two have been watching so that I can stop watching what I'm watching. <laughs> <laughs> so, Terry, what have you been watching recently? Um, so I have two things to, to briefly talk about. The first one is I am, um, as I mentioned in last week's episode, I'm trying to dig through my immense backlog of movies that I because I'm a collector <laughs> of them. I have a whole ton of them and I haven't watched them. And so I'm making a valiant effort to try to get through them. And I'm using the podcast as a way to keep me motivated to, to watch them and get through them. So I watched spookies. <laughs> oh my gosh. I own spookies, but I haven't watched it yet. Tell me everything. Yeah. Is it good? Oh my God. It's uh, it's something. It's something. Okay. <laughs> spookies. Um, huh? I'm going to write this down. Yeah. It's that, was from a, ni- that was a vinegar syndrome release it recently, was a right? Syndrome. Yeah. And it's been like caught up in rights hell for like forever. And no yeah. one thought they would ever release it. I'm still not quite 
sure how vinegar syndrome <laughs> released it um because you know sometimes these uh little independent movie distributors find ways to get something out there that is kind of iffy like i remember severin released i forget what the movie is called but they released it with the terminator 2 sleeve because that's what it was released outside of the u.s it was called terminator 2 um and so like Weird. and there was like legal issues here obviously i don't know why but <laughs> um but yeah so like yeah so spookies it was a movie that got filmed in two parts they filmed it and then there was like issue with uh the filmmakers and the producers it kind of sat there and then like a few months later the producers hired a different director to come in and film additional scenes and then splice them all together and boy does it feel like two different movies are happening at once Um, because there's like a a, there's a plot involving this this kid that's like run away from home and he's being stalked by some were cat with a hook hell yeah (laughs) i'm into it yeah (laughs) (laughs) meanwhile right and and there's this like old man that's living in the basement of this manor house and he he's keeping his wife sort of alive she's in like a coffin and she's been like in a it's not quite i'm not quite sure what happened i think she's dead but he's trying to bring her back to life oh and so this is like the stuff that they kind of added in afterwards oh um because <laughs> the main <laughs> main thrust of the movie that has that is never at all in any way shape or form attached to the rest of the movie is this group of i guess they're supposed to be teenagers but they look anywhere from like 30 to like 50 end up coming to this house and crashing it and it's an empty house and they're having a party there and then they all decide to go walk around the house by themselves for an hour okay and get picked off one by one by a variety of monsters i mean we're talking these mud men that fart um (laughs) there's like (laughs) this doesn't feel like a real movie (laughs) no yeah yeah are you punking on this feels fake there's mud men that every time they walk they fart you know, maybe there's some way out of here. Maybe through some secret walls. And so they're they're in the the basement and they're like just farting as they're like oh going after these people. There's I need like to, a spider I need queen. Movie. There's like a death who's actually just looks like a party city skeleton um (laughs) like it's 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 ridiculous i know one of the people that um, i'm friends with on twitter his name is morgan um he's at morgan or morg morgan 25 is his his handle he has been talking about this movie for years and i've been wanting to see it and he he thinks it's a masterpiece i don't know if he says that Mm -hmm. facetiously or not but (laughs) it is something it is it it is it is an it's crazy. I don't know what else to say. Um, okay. I definitely think you should watch it, Mary Beth, and maybe with like a few beers in in cool. you or something. Because I harder. have it. Someone sold. I I think I got it. I was at, I think it was at like Cinepocalypse or something, and someone told me like from the Vinegar Syndrome booth was telling me about it, and I was like, ah, oh, fuck it, why not? Yeah. I uh, as you were telling us about Spookies, I googled it, and looking through the images as you were telling us all of that was. A wonderful journey. <laughs> like I saw the so-called teenagers. I saw yeah. death. It's, it was I was there with you telling us <laughs> all about this movie. It's it great. is. It's it's wild. It is yeah. absolutely wild. Um, I'm gonna see it. 
And then the other thing that's not so wild, but um, is something that I'm going, I'm writing about with uh, Joe Lipset again. We we like to write about TV together, and um, so we got screeners to watch uh, the new Penny Dreadful, City <gasps> of Angels. Sorry. Mm. <sighs> wow. And cool. I, I love Penny Dreadful with my entire I, heart. Me too. Penny Dreadful, the original Victorian series, is mm -hmm. like one of my favorite pieces of television ever. It's so, it's so queer. It's so sexual. It's so horrific. I love, yeah, you know. And so I was really curious to see what this was going to do. And this is, there's a lot going on in this. Um, yeah, this is set in like like the Black Dahlia kind of era, right? It's set in 1938 in yeah, Los okay. Angeles, um, and it's it's about. Um, Boy, it's about race. Um, okay, yes. Is it done as poorly as I'm scared it's done? No. Um, I well, okay. I've only <laughs> Sorry, seen... to like, put it that way, but just like a lot of the promotion, it's about Mexican American superstition folklore, but a lot oh, of the cast yeah. is white, and so there's. I just I on Twitter on the internet, I've seen a lot of people being very skeptical about how that subject matter is being handled. So so this it's this. Oh boy, there, there's a lot going on here. There's <laughs> oh boy. It, well, it opens up with Santa Muerta, who mm -hmm. and her sister. I guess I, I don't. I'm not really familiar with with Mexican folklore too much, but her sister Magda is played by Natalie Dormer yeah. from Game of Thrones, and she also plays like three other characters mm -hmm. in in the in this show. Um, that she is that like this Magda is impersonating, but like so there's they're trying to set up. Well, she's trying to set up some like horrific events, and so it ties into the Germany uh, Nazi infestation in um, the United States during that time, where oh, like boy. they're getting involved with the politics of Los Angeles. It's about the fact that uh, progress is coming in terms of the uh, the motorway, the freeway that's going to be mm. opening up, and it's going right over a Chicano residency oh. where mm. our um, main character, he and his family, he's having to split with his family because he just recently got uh, to become like a detective with the police department. His partner is um, Nathan Lane. <laughs> nice. And so there's like... And who and Nathan Lane is like at, on the side, like doing this kind of research into the Nazi infiltration. So there's like there's so <laughs> there's a lot okay, going on. So there's a lot going on. <laughs> there's a lot going on, and I'm I'm I've only seen the first two episodes, and I'm not really sure where it's going to go. But it definitely feels a bit more stuffed, I would say, mm. than the first mm. uh, the first iteration. Um, okay. But. Um, I'm really, I'm really enjoying it. I think that they're laying out some really interesting threads that I really would like to see carried out. So I, I'm cautiously optimistic. Cool. Mm. Have you noticed that with a lot of TV that it seems like we're getting kind of crazy with the ensemble casts and yes. having way too many plot points going on at once? Yes. And that's, I think I'm afraid, because that's what I really liked about Penny Dreadful was that it was mostly yeah. about this, this small family unit. And there right. were some side characters, but I mean, this, you have the family unit, you have the, 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 um, the Jewish people played by Nathan Lane and his friends that are searching out the, the Nazis. You have this political thing of this mayor that's using all of this unrest to like further mm -hmm. his career. Like there's just so much going on. And oh boy. It is a stacked cast. I mean, you have everyone from like Piper Parabo. Lynn Shay is in it. The fuck? Yeah, Lynn Shay is in it playing Dottie, this like hearing deprived, like 
Jewish woman that's working with Nathan Lane. You have like Rory Kinnear is in it. He was in the original. Oh, wait, yeah, he was. Um, he was the Calypso? monster, right? Wasn't he the monster? Yeah, I thought he had gave himself a name. Oh, did he? Caliban, not Calypso. Caliban, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Caliban. Right, Sorry, right. Caliban. The cast is stacked, and I'm afraid, like you said, Andrew, that it's going to uh, that there's it's spreading itself a little too thin for yeah. eight episodes. But we'll see. I'm 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 into it. I'm curious to see where it's going to go. Um, I haven't talked to Joe about it yet. I don't know if he's watched it yet. So by the time this airs, we'll we'll know. But <laughs> right, right, cool. right. Um, but yeah, so when is it two. set to come out for like uh, normal people to watch? <laughs> the first episode hits uh, this. Uh, well, the, the Sunday that we're, we're going to record this, the April twenty sixth. So oh, it'll, okay. it'll be yeah, out. So when it's out this when this episode premieres. Yeah, yes. so people will be a couple episodes in. That's cool. Yeah. Um. So that's me. What about you, Mary Beth? So I've continued my found footage journey as I've talked about previously. I am just watching a lot of found footage movies for a personal project. And I watched two very good ones. Um, I'm going to roll with good ones. Or maybe I just think they're good and no one else does, but I don't care because I enjoy them. Um, So this week I watched The Tunnel, which is a 2011 Australian found footage movie about a tunnel. Uh, (laughs) Surprise. (laughs) But it's about a film crew who's trying to expose a conspiracy about why the Australian government is not tapping into these underwater reservoirs to help solve a water shortage crisis. And they find out why they stopped doing that when they go into the tunnel. It's very, it's got a lot of watching it. It's as above, so below definitely took some cues from it in terms of like the underground feel and like the running through Mm. like very close spaces. There are definitely some influences there in terms of how it's shot, but I think it's got a really interesting way of showing the monster interacting with the camera, which I really am interested in found footage when like the actual force or like whatever is the bad guy is interacting with technology. And so this is a really interesting moment of that. Which I huh. really enjoy. Um, like he, like this thing picks. It's, a, it's not a big moment, but like he picks up the camera and like films yeah. people, which I think oh. is really fucking cool because a lot of the time you don't see that happen in found footage and seeing like it makes it much more scary that you're seeing from the perspective of the monster. It's the point of sh- It's the POV yeah. Shot. It's the POV yeah. shot, and you're seeing kind of the world from the monster's eyes in a way, oh, which I think is cool. really cool, and I think that adds a lot to the film. Um, that's so cool because it's it's more than just a POV shot. It's like he's like filming them. So he's like not just watching them but doing something instead, doing an extra act more than just not attacking them. That's really yeah. creepy. Well, it also suggests a kind of like sentience that you don't usually yeah. like, uh, just, like ascribe to monsters in horror film, especially if yeah. they're like creatures working in the dark. But there is like a sentience and awareness of this creature that was really yeah. creepy. And so I really enjoyed that. And then I watched um, Afflicted, which is another found footage horror movie that is on Amazon Prime. Have either of you seen Afflicted? Is that the one one with the vampire? Is that? My ass didn't know it was a vampire. I would have watched this movie a long time ago. Because (laughs) Andrew, I I fucking love vampires, Andrew. Like, they are my shit. So, like, I didn't know this about vampires. I, I tried, like, with found footage, I tried to go in, like, as, like, as blindly as possible, just because I feel like you can get spoiled really quickly on what 
they uh-huh. have to offer. So I didn't know anything. I just said this guy got a disease or something. And so I watched it last night with my boyfriend and I didn't know it was a vampire movie. And it was so fucking good. Yeah. Oh, I'll check it out. I, I really am like amazed it. that I have seen not only a vampire movie, but it's a vampire found footage movie, a genre I'm not a fan of. <laughs> I've seen it before you. Terry, yeah. I'm embarrassed. Okay. I was, I was <laughs> watching it and I was like, how did I go so long without watching this movie? That's great. I was embarrassed, but also very happy that I finally watched it. Um, Terry, it what is good. You like? Okay, you liked it. Um, I and it's been a long time because it came out like twenty thirteen. Yeah, yeah. I think I saw oh, it either twenty thirteen or twenty fourteen. So I mean, it's been a good long time. But I remember actually really enjoying it. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's weird. I liked it a lot, and I think it does a lot of really interesting. I'm on like this big kick right now, and looking at how technology and found footage horror like go together and how found Mm. footage adapts to technology and how it is a very innovative subgenre and not giving enough credit to how it tries to adapt to our latest technological advances. And so I think that, no, I think that Afflicted does use GoPros in a really interesting way. I mean, someone Mm. on Letterboxd called it an ad for GoPro, which is hilarious, (laughs) but it is a really interesting way of utilizing GoPros and live streams and the idea of vlogging. I think it, tries to do a really interesting mm. like interaction with how we view vlogging and creating content for the internet to share with everybody. So those were the two things that I watched that I really enjoyed. And I'm going to just keep watching found footage films and talking about them on the podcast. Cause like, what else am I going to do with my time at this point? <laughs> <laughs> there's so many to watch. There are so many to watch and there's actually like surprisingly good. And again, maybe I am just biased, but I've watched some really good ones, and I'll get to some bad ones eventually, probably. But at the same time, I'll probably find something good about them, because I'm trying to be like, these movies are actually really interesting, even if the subject matter isn't your favorite. Like, you have to look at how cool it is that they're using, like, Google Glass, or GoPros, or, like, iPhones. So, anyway. And so I just lent some music to a, like, really short quarantine found footage, like, two-minute horror film. Like, it's a tiny little thing that... um, is really fun that Ian Hawk and Trevor Dillon, the directors of The Vicious and Foxwood, two horror films that I scored, they did this like in quarantine for fun. Oh, wow. Um, and there's something about found footage that is inherently like a little bit not, I don't, I don't want to say more scary, but scary in a different way. Yeah. That even though you know it's not real, like it still feels as though you're holding the camera, and that's yeah. a different kind of scary. Yeah, there's like a weird tangibility to it, especially because when a lot of these found footage horror movies insert like purposeful glitches to make the film broken, right. and like you're so used to having films pristine. be perfect, pristine, exactly pristine. Mm-hmm. Like you want to be immersed, like in scare quotes, in the world. And not disrupted by errors, but then right. found footage is all about errors and showing you shitty camera work on purpose and like broken stuff. And that's scary because it's like that feels more authentic because what film wants to show you like bad footage? Right. So there's a lot of authenticity in that, like in that purposeful destruction. Right. So I have a lot. We could talk about this for a very long time. So I'm going to change. <laughs> I have a lot of thoughts. <laughs> well, I also think that found footage gets a bad rep for like being quote easy to film or something. When it's, I don't think it really is. I think it has its own challenges. I agree with that, and I really want to talk to a found footage horror director. So if anyone yeah. listening to this wants to come on the podcast at some point in the future, 
hit us up. Um, nice. But <laughs> so besides that, Andrew, what have you been watching recently? My what I have been watching since uh, coronavirus has been going on for almost a month now, a little bit over a month. Uh, my Ashley and I, my wife and I decided we were going to it's so vanilla guys i'm, I'm embarrassed <laughs> it's okay. to say that. It's so vanilla but we decided we we're going to watch the released order of all the marvel movies oh, okay so that's fun though it's that's a, a lot- scoop of vanilla ice cream with like vanilla whipped cream <laughs> with like vanilla m&ms i don't it's all vanilla Look, but- sometimes it's what you need though especially in a time like this you need something yeah. that's like a little vanilla and that's fine because there's a shit ton of movies in that saga that and I it's like a so- lot of time for you that's a lot of things and a lot of like a good project I feel like. Yeah, it, it felt like something to tackle, and then like it felt like something to say, like, well, we we don't need to pick what to watch because we're watching twenty two movies yeah. for two weeks. Twenty two, three weeks. There's twenty two, maybe twenty three. I think twenty two. Holy but, shit! Yeah, and it was originally we were going like night by night, and it was pretty pretty good, but it started to get kind of exhausting because they're. <laughs> Like loud and mm-hmm. long and all the things that you don't want to watch every night back to back to back to back to back. Yeah. <laughs> so we've taken some nights off, but how far uh, are you in into it now? We are waiting for the right night to watch Captain Marvel, which is one of the best oh, ones. Wow. Cool. Yeah. So we're nearing the end of the line. Okay. Have you seen all of them before? Like have you both seen all of them and you're just revisiting them? Or is it a new experience for one of you? It's I don't think Ashley's seen all of them. Okay. I've seen all of them, but then like I didn't really remember a lot of them. Like I, I know that I went to the movie theater with my friend, uh, my singer at the time, my friend DJ. We saw the first Thor together, but we had just come from a bar, so I definitely <laughs> didn't remember that movie. Hell yeah, cool. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, and speaking of Thor, like those movies, or at least the early ones, are basically just like the comic book movie version of a bodice ripper. They really are. And like they're I think they're so boring. I and like Yeah. They are a bodice ripper. It really it's like he looks like Fabio. Yeah. And he's not the main character in those first two movies. No, he's not. Yeah. He just like comes down, he's like, Hello. I am the Thunder God. (laughs) And she's like, Oh boy. Like it's a total bodice ripper. It's it is. And actually, I can't take credit for that. Uh, Ashley was the one that pointed that out to me. I was like, you're right. It's a bodice ripper. Like the cover, you know, you're thinking of like Fabio on the cover. All right. yeah. yeah, you're absolutely correct. I didn't even think about that. Well, I'm can- ruining Thor for all of the, the <laughs> fanboys who love him. And I feel like, uh, well, Kenneth Branagh directed the first one, which I think is hilarious. Yeah, yeah. And... I, I love the third one. I mean, I think that's like a pretty widely it's accepted so thing. The yeah. third one is very good and very different. But like the first well, two, he got me- hot. He got hot. He got he got way hotter. Yeah, <laughs> I'm all about the the short hair Hemsworth. I oh, just yes. gotta say, agreed. Well, especially the first one, it, it was like clearly a wig or oh something. My God, it, it was so like oh, a wig. Yes, so strange. But yeah, when he yeah, cool. Well, that sounds like. A fun quarantine activity. I'm going through the Resident Evil franchise, so like... <laughs> oh, I should do that next. That's cool. The Most of them are on Netflix. Oh, good. If okay. not all of them. So Steve, my partner, and I are chipping away at that. Well, he's seen most of them, but I haven't. So we're chipping away at that. And that's been pretty nice. fun because they're like, not the best movies, but they're really entertaining. So They're entertaining. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I will say that the past couple of nights, I took a break from marvel and i watched the first four episodes of 
an epics show called Perpetual Grace Limited. I have never heard of that before. I haven't heard of that either. It's it's a sleeper. I think a lot of people are going to find it and realize how quirky and fun it is. I almost want to compare it to like if the Coen brothers did a TV show because it's oh. this great cast put in kind of like just outside the realm of reality, but but close enough to reality that is believably and, and human and fun. Like it's an absurd story that's all connected and tied together. So far, it's really fun. I can't recommend it. Oh enough. my gosh, the cast, Ben Kingsley's in it, Jackie Kingsley, Weaver, um, Louise Guzman's in it. Oh, what's his name? The uh, Simpson, uh, Jimmy, Jimmy Simpson. Simpson. And I love so Jimmy Simpson. He was in yeah. Stay Alive, the um, horror video game movie that I will stand by forever. Is that what? Is that the Hulu one? No, he was in a Hulu no, one. No, he was too, in a, yeah. For... No, he was in something different. But Stay Alive is like a 2006 or something like movie about a haunted horror game by the ghost of Elizabeth Bathory. Um, <laughs> it's like pretty bad, but it's one of my favorites that I love to like push on people, even though it's not great. And so I just bring it up. And someone someone just wrote about it recently. Matt Donato wrote about it recently, and I was like, justice for yeah, he's been talking about it alive. <laughs> Um, is that justice though? I'd be Demon Wind. Come on. Vindicated. I am selfish. <laughs> I am right. I am I swear um, I'm right. <laughs> uh, anyway, cool. I so, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Hold on. Okay, I'm good. I'm back. Uh, okay, got got the giggles out. All right. For now. Okay, so. We've talked about what we've been watching now, but what movie have you brought with you today, Andrew? I have brought to talk about E.T. the Extraterrestrial. In 1975, he directed Jaws. In 1978, he directed Close Encounters of the Third Kind. In 1981, he directed Raiders of the Lost Ark. And now, Universal Pictures presents Steven Spielberg's E.T. The Extraterrestrial. Exciting. So before we start talking about E.T., the extraterrestrial, I just want to read a quick synopsis of the film to get everyone caught up. So a group of alien botanists secretly visit Earth, but are forced to flee when government agents discover their presence. One of them is unfortunately left behind and ends up being discovered and befriended by 10-year-old Elliot. Elliot dubs the alien E.T. and introduces him to his brother and sister. The children decide to keep E.T.'s existence a secret as they figure out how to get him back to his family. Can I just say how charming it is uh, that E.T.'s introduction to human beings is through children? Yes. Yes. Oh, it's, it's so, so sweet. sweet. But then also kudos to Elliot for knowing the word terrestrial. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I never really noticed that. He's like, E.T., extraterrestrial like i didn't know what that meant also i just want to say at the top of this that elliot is now like a grown-ass man who was the dad in hill house oh my god and he did such a good job in it he really did i it, when when mary beth told me that um like like last week 
that I was like, no, really? That's him? No, no. I, I couldn't yeah. believe it. Yeah. Dude, yeah. Henry Ugh. Thomas, he's, I believe I'm his so name I'm so glad is. that he's back. I don't know if... I don't know if he intentionally like took time off or, or w- what the story behind that is, but I'm, I'm glad that he is on that show or was on that show. Cause I think it's just for that season and I hope to see him more. Yeah. Really. He's in another movie called Dreamcatcher that's coming out. It's another horror oh. movie that he's in, that he's pretty good in. Was he in, I can't remember who directed the Hill House, but was he in one of his movies before he did Hill House? He was in Gerald's Game. Oh, um, that's right. He was in Gerald's Game. Mike Flanagan's movie. So, but okay. So, how old were you when you saw ET, and what what is the story behind this movie and its terrifying presence? Well, first of all, I need to get this out of the way. I wanted to choose Jurassic Park. <laughs> oh, and I have a a great story about why. Can I tell the story? Absolutely, Absolutely. please. Somebody do. else chose Jurassic Park. I I haven't listened to the episode, but oh, you I will. Sh- you should it. just yeah. because it's a hilarious story. Because Jessica, who did Jurassic Park, is absolutely terrified of it and it's amazing oh that's great okay well then i'm glad she got it because animatronic dinosaurs terrify oh her. my god that's amazing so yeah yes well, i'm glad she got it then because that's better mine is just like a, a, a fun story uh in the small town in new york where i grew up horseheads new york there was a drive-in movie theater that i hope is still around i doubt it but we used to go and on saturday nights I think it was just maybe just during the summer, but they would have double features where they would play like a kid's movie and then an adult's movie. Not like a rated R movie, but like a more adult, like PG-13 movie maybe, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, hoping that maybe the kids fall asleep and then the parents can like, usually it was like a rom-com, like they can watch like uh, You've Got Mail or whatever it is and while their kids sleep in the backseat and then go home. This particular one was... I think Free Willy and then Jurassic Park. Oh, interesting. So I fell asleep during Free Willy because who wouldn't? (laughs) No, not. And I woke up during Jurassic Park during the scene when the T-Rex is trying to kill the kids who are in In the the car, car. the Ah, backseat of the car. And I'm in the backseat of a car. It was so terrifying. (laughs) Uh, But I love that movie. Spielberg, man. Anyways, Spielberg. And I actually feel like E.T. in some ways was like a warm up for Jurassic Park in some scenes. Yeah. Yes, I, I, I made notes about that from the beginning, just in the, the beginning yeah. opening with, with the score and everything. And there's the woods and there's the flashlights to the woods. It has a very like Jurassic Park feel to it. Totally. And they were more than 10 years apart, yeah. which is wild to me. But to answer your question, I can't remember how old I was when I saw E.T., but I know that it was maybe a little bit too young Mm -hmm. to process, to fully process the feelings in that movie. Yeah. And that might've led to like, what was so scary about it? Not being able to process that intense, the way the death is introduced to a child audience in ET is so real that it was, I think part, I think that's, a big part of why it was so scary. The ending of that movie is so scary. Seeing E.T. like pale and white like that is Ugh. so frightening. Yes. Because you're you're facing death that's not like brought by the hands of a villain, like Scar or something. It's it's you can't like easily blame a bad guy for the death of 
like the hunter and Bambi. You can't be like that thing killed Bambi's mom. It's just death. It's just like normal. This is naturally occurring death. Yeah. And I think that's hard to process. And I think that translates to like really scary feelings. At least it did for me. If I'm psychoanalyzing myself, you know, <laughs> no, that's, that's a, that's an excellent point because, um, I, what, what I was picking up this time rewatching it was how omnipresent death is in this, in this movie. Yeah. Just because you have like, there's so many different themes of, of death going on with like the death of the nuclear family. You have like, mm. um, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. You have like, um, ET who's, who's dying and he's connected to Elliot. So Elliot is in turn like getting really sick and you even have like the, the autopsy moment mm. with like the, the Ugh. frogs where they're asking the kids to kill the frog. I, you know, I, it's I don't remember that ever happening in, in, when I was that kid's age. No. I think the last time, like the first time that we dissected something, it was like owl, owl pellets in like seventh or eighth grade. And we didn't even go to like animals until like high school for me. And they were already dead. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They were How already horrible. dead. They smelled terrible. Oh God. I can't. That smell. Oh, I don't even know what it was. Was it like formaldehyde, formaldehyde. or something? Yeah, yeah. It was terrible. And they would like permeate through the, the science hall all day. Do you know what I do remember, though? I do remember my teacher in, like, seventh grade saying, we used to do this to live frogs. So I know they must I know they must have done it, but I don't know if they still did it in the 80s or if that was something that, like, Spielberg and the screenwriter, um, Melissa Matheson, I don't know if that's something they injected into the story that wasn't still happening in the 80s, but maybe happened in, like, the 50s, you know? Yeah. That's horrible. Yeah. It's very, that is horrible. Yeah, because the... My seventh grade science teacher was like, we used to do this. We used to put them under and then cut. Th so you could see the heart still beating. Uh, uh, and being like, oh, that I, I wouldn't be able to do that. I can't I can't handle it. That was the day that I dreaded it at, at, in school. Like I can watch all these horrific movies, but that moment when it's like real. No, nope, can't do right. it. Can't and in it. the film, there's something really magical about like once Elliot starts to free the frog, like all of the kids are like, yeah, this is stupid because like it is stupid. And kids yeah. know that. But the adult science teacher doesn't seem to remember or know that feeling of like, we shouldn't do this to animals. Yeah. So you, it seems like you had kind of an almost an existential like uh, <laughs> fear to this movie just because of like the, the nature of death. But do you remember any was it was it that overall, do you think? Or was there like scenes or anything that really stood out to you as a kid that you remember? Well, I think um, it's. Almost like like a lot of the movie almost plays as like a PG version of a horror movie in yes. some scenes, like especially the very beginning. Yeah. And then it definitely like the end when E.T. is like pale and dying. There is there's a scene actually before that, right before that, if I'm remembering, there's a scene where the like FBI or the government people are like going in to the home because the yep. home is empty and they're like searching it <gasps> and that almost feels that's my like that's the worst scene yeah because they're invading the space that we've come to love yeah of our beloved characters like home um but it's shot with these shadows and the lights and it almost feels like poltergeist or something it's really cool which i think is the same year right 1982 yeah i think so um i know he was i know he yeah. was working on them around the same time right right but like that, okay. That scene with the spacesuits and yes. climbing in through the through the house. 
Yeah. Freaked me out as a kid. It, me too. Really? That was the scariest scene. Like when I was thinking about scariest scene in this movie, that was the one where like I think I shut down watching the movie and like didn't understand what was happening and was right. very confused and was like there are, there are more aliens. Like I don't think I could conceive of the fact that like the government would do this as a child. Right. Like I could not conceive of that as a possibility and I was just very upset with the way they were treating the family and Elliot and E.T. And I think my small brain was just like unable to comprehend that those were human beings doing that. Same. Like, I don't think I could grasp it. And it scared me and it upset me so much. And I think like that definitely horrified me. Like it wasn't E.T., but it was the act of it was people that scared me when I watched that movie. Right. Right. How old were you when you saw it, Mary Beth? Do you know? I don't even remember. It's like it feels like it's a movie that like I've always known about. Exactly. Yeah, totally. Like, I don't even remember the first time I watched it. I just remember the I, all I remember from the first time watching it is taking away that you could put the thermometer on the light bulb. <laughs> yeah, and trick and <laughs> trick your mom. It. Like that's how I first <laughs> learned about it. Was that? But good. I don't remember how old I was. I just remember watching it young, and like it was just like one of the movies we all watched as a family. I think the best way to sum up how I feel and I think how you feel Mary Beth is that I don't remember the first time, like I don't remember when I watched it or the first time I watched it, but I remember the way I felt the first time. Yeah, I watched it. exactly. Yes. Like very much like, and I was like a, I was a very sensitive kid who like, I still am a sensitive person. Like I cry a lot and like very easily. And so like, that's good. That means you're a human, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think I just like, if there's, it happened to me with movies about dogs and people and like yeah. getting to I get too attached to that relationship. And this I got I had the same thing with E.T. and Elliot and when he's already getting treated poorly, I got so upset. Yeah. It's like E.T. is a person, goddammit, or at least like the equivalent of a person. Right. And I think that just like in my brain I couldn't comprehend cruelty like that, I guess. Right. Or what I perceived as cruelty. So So Carrie, uh- I want to go back, and I think this is going to answer your question, Mary Beth. I want to go back to how you, Andrew, were saying that it's almost like a PG horror movie because right. I don't remember how old I was, just just like the rest of us. But I, mm-hmm. this movie has always been part of my young life. Yeah, but it terrified me. Um, in more than multiple times, like as I was rewatching it, um, I was like, okay, I remember when mm-hmm. Elliot is walking through the the cornfield. Yes, and the lights oh, yeah. of PG it's, jump scare. It, yes, and it's a perfectly staged scare where you know first he hears something, then he sees the mm-hmm. footprints and the, yes. the following the light, and all of a sudden it hits him, and it's the first time we actually really get to see ET, and he like is so animated and he's flailing his arms and he's screaming like a <laughs> the scream is it's, very scary. Yeah, I I had vivid memories of that scene as a kid. And I, again, don't remember how old I was. I saw it, but I, it must have been very briefly before I was introduced to, like, real horror movies. And right. yet this for some reason has left lasting impressions on my mind more so than any of the grotesque horror movies that I saw at that time. And so I remember that scene, that scene really got me. And then the scene where a little bit later when Elliot is falling asleep, he fell asleep outside and he's like Mm -hmm. trying to, you know, keep watch over the creature and he's standing in like the shed 
and he's like mm. just illuminated by the fog and then he just yeah. starts like shuffling forward briefly <laughs> yes yeah. oh my god yes <laughs> yeah and he's like he's moaning and he's like making all these grunting noises yes and you don't see him he just like all of a sudden he's he's there and then he like shuffles forward like suddenly <sighs> And I, I remember, I, I completely forgot that this happened to me, but I remember having a vivid nightmare about <gasps> a slimy hand reaching out and like touching <gasps> me because of the, the, you know, he's like paralyzed and he's trying yes. to call for his mom and his brother and this hand is reaching out. And of course it's just to drop Reese's pieces on his blanket. Right. It's a nice thing. But like, I remember having vivid nightmares about the scene of this hand coming out, the slimy, weird, otherworldly hand and touching me. And and it's played that way. It's intentionally scary so mm -hmm. that the Reese's Pieces drop is like a turn. Yeah. So they are trying to scare kids. This it is works. like crazy. I, I had nightmares about like spacemen standing in the window mm. looking in at my mom washing the dishes and she couldn't see the spaceman that I could see. Ugh. And that's like totally what happens. They're like reaching through the windows and stuff. Like They're like yeah. zombies. They're coming through the house like, yeah. like zombies and like Night of the Living Dead. It's a very much a home invasion moment of the of the movie at the end. In a way that's kind of not realistic, but but, no, but childlike in the way that like that's how the kids in the movie would have seen that. Yeah. Which brings it like brings up a, a thought that I had when I was watching it most recently is that a lot of this movie is shot from the angle yes. of the kids, like low angled, looking up at the mom. Yeah. When Elliot is in, like Mary Beth, when you said he like touches the thermometer to the thing, the camera is like up by the ceiling because Elliot is in the bunk bed looking yeah, down at the exactly. Floor. It's like shot from the kid's perspective, the whole movie. It's crazy. It is. And the thing that I noticed this time watching it that I, I never really thought, I mean, there's a lot I didn't think of when I was a kid. I was just scared, but, um, <laughs> but I, you don't really see any of the adults' faces, and except for the mm. mom, mm -hmm. it's not until the very end with the the scientists, where after they've taken off the their spacesuits and whatnot, that you even see an adult face. Like even in in class with the teacher, everything is from the kid's perspective, and it's face downward on the kid, so you don't see you don't see the man that's handing out like the assignments and stuff. That's and true. Handing, you don't see any any adult faces except for Mary, the mom. Very Charlie Brownish, like. Yeah, and you know another scene like there's so many uh, that came to me when I was when I was rewatching this, but another it's so small, but it freaked me out as a kid was when the mom goes into the closet and like the camera passes over all of the animals and there's ET like standing completely <laughs> yes! still. It's not supposed to be a scary moment, but it terrified me as a kid because I had piles of animals like that, and it's like oh my mm -hmm. god, what's hiding behind those that I can't see. And it's not a, e you're right. It's not a scary moment, but it almost feels like it's filmed like a scary moment. Like it's coming across. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. It, it's, it's all those little tiny moments like that. Even when like Gertie, who I, I completely forgot that, that, uh, that Drew Barrymore was in this. Yes. Oh. <laughs> but like, even when, when she meets E.T. for the first time and his neck extends and he <laughs> screams, yeah. she screams. Yeah. And then like the scene where she's in the closet. 
and he comes like running after her with his arms up and she the kid again it freaked me out now i'm like i laughed i was laughing hysterically yeah. at, at the image of it but as a kid him seeing him like running with his arms up like he's chasing her terrified me right well and also like he's the size of a kid so yeah. i feel like when he's that size it's so much scarier because he's on your level right. but now as an adult i'd be like looking down and be like hello small friend right. or like short friend but you know he is the size of those kids so he is like their level and much scarier and right. i think that's why i i mean that makes sense terry like i think that was why i w- was so nervous about et because he was like my size but very much not a human and it was very strange like almost uncanny because uncanny seems like the wrong word because he doesn't look like a person but like he kind of has like the eyes the mouth like the interactions mm-hmm. so it was very off me well, and I think it kind of goes back to Andrew, sorry, what, what goes back to what you were saying, Andrew, about about how the, it's filmed, because I think the fact that it's filmed at our level and he is our size as a kid where we're watching it really heightens the the horror because it's not looking because like, let, let's be honest, the camera was up above and it's from an adult perspective down at it. This is mm. a little tiny like munchkin dude, right? But because right. the camera and everything is set from our perspective as a kid while we're watching it, it makes him feel bigger than life. Right, 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 right. But I'm sorry, I interrupted you, Andrew. What were you oh, going to say? Oh, I was just going to compliment the the puppetry and and how in oh, other moments so of of the film, when ET just looks over and does like a gentle smile, it's so it's like it's not a puppet anymore. It's no, it's emoting so strongly without any words. And actually, there is an actress who's credited for ET voice, ET's voice, and her name I have to say, Pat Welsh. You have to look up videos of this woman. She's amazing. She's she's at the time of E.T. was an el- an older woman, very small and very sweet. And you got to find a YouTube video of Pat Welsh and, and just to listen to up. her natural voice is E.T.'s voice. It's so charming. Meet Pat Welch. Ouch. Ouch. Oh, that's adorable. So looking at it as an adult, though, um, this movie is a brilliant isn't it it's yes. it's so good yeah um from the moment like i and i kind of want to talk about the score because we i mean we spent the last like hour talking about how music can tie into into feelings and mm-hmm. let me tell you first two things the first one is that when it starts it has an almost like alien vibe like the the yeah. the, the, the sound the, the score has that kind of like the original alien opening vibe Where it's like this very ominous, otherworldly, like not even real music that. kind of sound. Thinking, thinking what we know about the e, like ET as a movie now, you wouldn't expect the first sound to be, and it's a it's a super ball, um, which is the type of rubber mallet that is like causes a lot of friction when you rub it on something, and it's a super ball being rubbed on a like a gong, and I actually have oh. a patch of it loaded up. Um, you would be surprised that this is the first sound you hear in E.T. Yes. It's this weird... It's so... It's crazy. It's so otherworldly. And it it brought to mind, like, the alien. Like, I was immediately, like, put on edge of the same way that, like, um, the score from Alien was just so otherworldly. And then it transitions into the the scene that just brought me back to being a kid and, and the, the music. That E.T.'s theme is just, it's so wonderful. 
I, what I think, and if we're going to jump into the score, I'm so excited. What I think is great about E.T.'s musical world that we live in is we don't actually like fully hear E.T.'s theme. We don't hear that full theme until they take off in that epic moment and they're flying on the bicycle. It's like hinted at every now and then. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there's a theme that's like very similar to that theme that uh, John and John Williams and Steven Spielberg refer to as the call. And it's this. Mm. And that's a very. It's a it's a it's a theme that's very similar in that it jumps up a fifth, jumps up that musical interval of a fifth. Yeah, but it's not quite the theme. It just hints at it. Um, I would love to play this clip of John Williams and uh, Steven Spielberg talking about the call. Can we do, do that? Yeah, go Can for it. Definitely. All right, cool. This is them um, with like a little, like watching the film on like a little. I don't know what it's called, but it's like a little little projector that only plays it's like a tv but for film it would project a light up onto a screen okay yeah is okay. it a, like a mariola or something i can't remember the name of it but they're watching the film and he's john and steven are at john's piano it's really cool if it would be convenient to go into the call That. It, it, it seems like a very natural transition yeah. into the loneliness and out of the uh, the tenderness. Yeah. I always get that confused. Sometimes. Sometimes. Does it ever go up once in the movie <laughs> yet? yet? It hasn't gone up yet, has it? At the end, I'll save it for okay. the last reel. Wow. Up or down? Up. <laughs> Maybe once down, it could go down once and then go up. So, so that's is that them basically like scoring the film right there live? Like, is yeah, that what that's, that is? that's likely um, them during what we call playback, or like, or even it might be when they're spotting it. Uh, but they're definitely like deciding what musical cues and what themes are should play when so okay in a modern scoring sense like i would have the director come over and we play things on our computer and they watch the movie while it plays back like the computer mock-up of the score and that's called playback mm. saying like hey look we're, we're here to watch um these four scenes that i'm worked on and i need your approval and if you have any notes or tweaks things like that so that it to me that seemed like um, somewhere between spotting session, which is like before you write any music, you sit down with the director and talk about the whole movie it, for a feature. It can take like a whole day somewhere between the spotting session and like a playback, which on a movie like this wouldn't have like Steven Spielberg didn't hear this music until he was standing with the orchestra, you know? Yeah. So that might have been like the 1981, 1982 version of a playback. Where wow. they're going through and saying, oh, here's the perfect part for, you know, this theme and that theme. and Wow. That's amazing. That's, that's so amazing. cool. 
And wow. that video, you can find that on YouTube. It's so cool. They they dug it up for a documentary. I can't remember what documentary it was, but it was it was cool. That is cool. Um, would you mind sending us the link so we can like link that in the yeah. if you have it? I will send it to you for sure. <clears throat> okay. Um, so, wow, <laughs> that um, man. What? So there there is one scene that like really hit me this time. Um, yeah a lot more than I ever remembered it. It's the realization that uh, it's a, it's a divorced family. Mm, mm, yeah. Like the dinner scene. Dad would believe me. Maybe you ought to call your father and tell him about it. I can't. He's in Mexico with Sally. Do you like that scene was so intense for me this time rewatching it. Um, just the, the, the kind of argument that sort of like evolves from no one wants to believe Elliot and he's like, well, dad would believe me. And then yeah. it kind of like reminded me a little bit of, of hereditary where he's, where she, she's immediately like, well, maybe you ought to call your father and tell him about it. Mm. Like, it's like this, it's a very like tense filled conversation. And he immediately responds, I can't, he's in Mexico with Sally. And we don't know who Sally is, but I'm assuming Sally <laughs> is his, his new fling. Right, right. We don't know who she is, but we know who she is. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's that, that scene, man, it, it, it really hit me this time. And it also establishes the emotional journey that, that Elliot's yeah. going to go on because his brother's like, why, why don't you ever think about someone else for a change? That is exactly the call to action, isn't it? Yeah, it go is. Go up and think about somebody else. It's yeah. like, and he gets up from the table and goes over to the window. Yeah. And, uh, and actually that is the moment where we, another moment where we hear the call. He's looking out the window and the steam is coming yeah. out. That's a moment that's where right. we hear the call. It's That's why like them calling that theme the call is so great because it is like a call of something else out there calling to us. That it's is really so neat. neat. Yeah. The other thing that like I realized this, this time watching is just how much Stranger Things yes. owes to this movie. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Seriously. Like, I, I forgot like all of it. The kids playing D&D, the kids riding around towns yeah. on the bike. On the bicycles. The... And I think they even use like the same van in Stranger yeah. Things, like a same model of van or something. Even like the discovering something's outside that, you know, and they try to hide it from their parents in, in mm -hmm, Stranger Things. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, 11. And then the scientists and the government types ultimately being like, you know, like the bad guys in, in a way and going to look for the thing and they have to like keep it from from them. Like th there's so much <laughs> going yeah. back to this movie that like I've realized how much Stranger Things owes. And the way that kids talk to each other in the 80s. Like, yeah. Yes. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Penis breath. Yeah. It was Penis breath. Oh, it's great. And, uh, Dee Wallace's response to that, <laughs> where she's like trying to be an adult. Elliot, <laughs> sit down. But she's also like laughing along she with laughs. it. Yeah, it's very charming. She's yeah. so good in this movie. She's like, Elliot. It's so good. <laughs> like, Elliot. She's like, that's <laughs> funny, but you shouldn't say that. Right. Yeah. This is the second movie we've covered with her in it for Scarred for, Scarred for Life. And Oh, really? She's yeah, cuz she we, we talked about Cujo oh, yeah. with um oh, with April. Cujo. And man, she she's phenomenal in this movie. Yeah. She, she does carry a lot. lot. Yeah. She yeah. 
I, and I, I, I love in that dinner scene where, you know, like she slams down the dishes and she's like, he doesn't even like Mexico. He doesn't even like <laughs> or Mexico. hates Mexico or whatever. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's just such like a, 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 a relatable comment yeah. that, you know, I just, yeah. And an unsung amazing actor in this movie. I mean, everybody always talks about Henry Thomas and D. Mm-hmm. Wallace and Drew Barrymore, but Robert... Mc, I'm gonna I'm gonna say it poorly, but Robert mm-hmm. McNaughton, the, the who plays the older brother, yep. Michael, he does yeah. a really great job in this movie, kind of playing this like he's like a good son to his mom and not always a good brother to his to Elliot. Mm-hmm. You know, like like that scene when when he yells at Elliot, it's almost like he's like trying to be the dad of. There's a lot of scenes where he's like trying to be the dad of the family for his mom. Yeah. And I think that's a really interesting like and nuanced role for a teenager basically to play. Yeah. Yeah. The, the theme of of like not necessarily fatherhood but like being that kind of like protector for someone right. is such a important theme in this movie because you just mentioned the you know the the older brother doing it and Elliot does it for for et and et right. does it for Elliot. Like right. it's almost like they're filling this like void that's left by the disintegration of the nuclear family at that time. And the fact that that scene at the dinner table was impactful for you, this go around is kind of like, it's kind of telling because that is the nugget of the rest of the movie. The absence of the father Mm -hmm. speaks to the entire character development of all of the characters or most of the characters in this movie. Yeah. Even E.T., the absence of his family unit is is a part of his, you know, arc. Have you guys seen, like, the ripoffs of of E.T., like, Mac and Me? No, I have not. No, I haven't seen Mac and Me. Oh, my God. Mac and Me was directed by the guy that would ultimately direct Tammy and the T-Rex. Oh, my God. But what a good... And that creature liked McDonald's. (laughs) <laughs> that was like a big, like if this was like a, a shill for Reese's wow. Pieces, that was a shill for McDonald's. That's great. I have, I've only seen clips of that movie whenever, um, God, what's his name? Paul. Paul Rudd. Paul Rudd is on Conan O'Brien show. <laughs> he shows a clip from that movie every time. Yeah. I used to watch that as a kid. Uh, I used to really enjoy it as a kid. I have not seen it since then i'm i'm sure it's absolutely terrible do we but, think uh, flight of the navigator was an easy ripoff that flight was of like the navigator yeah that was yeah. that was kind of like another one was like the explorers i think it was called okay there was like so many that just kind of came out you know as as they do like all the gremlin ripoffs and everything mm-hmm. that come out mm-hmm. after a successful movie. the jurassic so this so that director for mac and me did a an et ripoff and a jurassic park he did response. I mean, it wasn't a full <laughs> ripoff, but it was like, "Hey, mechanical T Rexes, let's do it." Yeah, basically, <laughs> a producer uh, in a smoky room. Hey, you know what's really hot right now? <laughs> mechanical T Rexes. <laughs> let's get one of those in a movie. <laughs> I mean, that's literally how that movie came about. Was yeah. some theater person had had it? It's like, let's make a movie. <laughs> Have you guys seen the R-rated cut? Yeah, yet? the oh, R-rated cut. It. Oh, or the yeah. cut. It's yeah. so good. So fun. I think it's, it's such, such a fun, a fun movie. movie. It's so... St- Ask, uh, S- Sam will talk about that movie. He loves it's that so movie. It's so dumb, but it's so good. Up. Yeah. I love it. 
You know, and there's so there's one other thing I want to I want to mention, and that's that when I was growing up, I asked my parents, "What does Cine Supremus mean?" Zero charisma. Cine Supremus. Zero charisma. Cine Supremus. Shut up, Greg. And no one could tell me. And now I had to like Google it because oh, at the time, kn- Google didn't exist, and it basically means supreme nothing. But like, it is such like a a random thing to put in a movie that's never explained, Cine and it Supremus. wasn't until. This week, <laughs> I figured out what they're saying. You are doing God's work because I would not have. I just, I just let that moment pass and just like, eh, I don't know. So Elliot knew what extraterrestrial meant, and he knew what Cine Supremus is. Like he's just got the vocabulary of like a forty-five year. Guys, what if Elliot was the real <gasps> alien all along? <gasps> dun dun dun. <laughs> the real alien is the people we meet along the way. <laughs> uh, yep. yeah <laughs> that's awesome oh man so shall we give this uh our, um a five out of five our, our ratings yes okay so the rating this week is out of five Reese's pieces obviously so terry how many Reese's pieces out of five do you give et you know, um, on my letterbox, I have it as a four and a half, but rewatching it, it's a five. Yeah. This is uh, this is a masterpiece that that brings together delightful music, really well done scares, and and heart. But it also feels it doesn't feel treacly or sappy. It feels mm. it feels very real, real and grounded in the emotion. And I that's something that you don't see a whole lot, especially I don't think you see that a whole lot with kid movies today like i don't i don't know this movie this movie's something special and mm. it had been 30 years probably since i'd seen it like i have not seen this movie since i was a kid but it brought me back to being a kid and that the kind of feeling of being a kid not necessarily nostalgia mm. it just brought me back to what childhood was yeah and i i i think I think it's a brilliant film. I think it, it definitely has held up over the years, yeah. and I definitely would give it five Reese's Pieces, if not more. <laughs> what about you, Mary Beth? Uh, five out of five Reese's Pieces. This, like you said, it, this movie just feels like childhood. It, mm-hmm. like we all said, you never, you don't remember seeing it, but you remember feeling it, and it's like you've always seen, like known about this movie, and it's just like such an important part of so many people's childhoods. And it's really this story that teaches you compassion and love and the ways that love Mm. can, like the different ways that love can manifest, Mm. which I think is really important, especially for kids to understand that like love and family can mean so many different things, compassionate person. And I think that movie just really, really stuck with me for the, for a long time. And it still has stuck with me. And I think I can't even put into words like the emotional connection I've, I have with it, but yeah, five out of five Reese's Pieces for that like strong, strong emotional connection and how desperately I wanted to have my own ET growing up. Mm-hmm. As a child of divorced parents with two younger brothers, I was like, I want my wow. own ET, but <laughs> it didn't happen. That's okay. All right, so Andrew, you have the final word. How many Reese's Pieces out of five are you giving I ET, think- and what are your final thoughts? Out of five Reese's Pieces, can I... So I think I'm just going to eat the whole bag in like one... I'm just going to pour the whole thing into my mouth. Hell oh, yes. Hell yeah. Just, 
I don't know. You can't eat only five Reese's pieces. <laughs> I, I dare you. <laughs> it's true. You can't. No, but I, I love this movie. It's one of my favorite movies. Uh, I think even though it really is scary as a kid and, you know, made makes kids face death in a really real way, you almost have to go through that extreme low to have that incredible soaring ending when they mm. when he drives up to his friends and he's like get on your bikes and get to the hill go to the park that it's just such an extending like an exciting ending to a movie i can't even it's, it's such a rush yeah it's yeah. such a rush and it's so earned because you have that like really deep sadness right before it like oh there's there's no better feeling in a movie experience mm. for me than when you first see like E.T.'s like chest start to glow and then Elliot's walking yes. away and you see the flowers grow up and the music starts to pick up and you're like, oh, here we go. Like, ah, I get so excited. So, yeah, I'm going to eat the whole bag of Reese's Pieces. <laughs> it's all, it's yeah. all for me. Um, yeah, I love this movie. Awesome. That's awesome. Thank you guys well, so much for having me on. This has been such a treat. A well, really oh. wonderful joy. Well, thank you, Andrew, for joining us to talk about E.T. Uh, this this brought back so many different emotions. And yeah. I got to say, this was such a fun conversation. Um, Good. Thank you. But Good. where where can the listeners find you? And what do you have coming up? I have the Shutter Queer Horror Doc coming up. Um, it's kind of a weird time to answer that question because uh, coronavirus kind of put things on hold. Yeah. Some of the other projects yeah. on hold. Luckily... Um, the shutter doc had filmed before this all happened and they were editing while it all broke. But some of the projects that I maybe by now could have talked about are on hold until further notice. So I can't necessarily say what I'm up to next, but the, for certain, the queer horror doc is, is the shutter queer horror doc is coming up and, uh, listeners can find me, uh, through all of the social, most of the social media platforms at Andrew Scott Bell. Um, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and my website is andrewscottbellmusic.com. It desperately needs updating, but it's, it's there. <laughs> and, uh, and in the meantime, you can go and, and listen to that December suite. Yes. Yes, please. We we'll, have the link is in the show notes, yep. guys. So if you want to listen to that, and then we'll probably tweet out some links as well along with the episodes. So people can hear your amazing work. Oh, thank you. Um, so, listeners, you've heard from us, but we want to hear from you. What was your experience with E.T., the extraterrestrial? Send us an email at scarredforlifepodcast at gmail.com or reach out to us directly on Twitter. I am at MB McAndrews. And I'm at Gailey Dreadful. And, of course, keep the conversation going with the podcast on Twitter at at scarredpodcasts. And please don't forget to review, rate, and subscribe. Thank you to everyone for listening. Thank you to Steve Barnold for our artwork. Thank you to Sean Keller for our music. Everyone stay safe out there, but most importantly, stay creepy. Wait, Sean did the music? I love Sean. <laughs> oh, that's so awesome. I'm going to text him. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And until next time.
As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's the show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Acast.com.